Pump Court Family Law Podcast. My name is Tara Lyons and today I'm delighted to be joined by Edward Boydell and Mark Dubbery from Pump Court. They're going to talk to us or take us through the court's powers to vary nuptial settlements in financial remedies cases. Now this was a topic specifically requested by one of our listeners but we felt others would find it incredibly useful. I'm certainly eager to hear all about it. Um, Edward Boydell is a leading financial remedies practitioner and also a part-time recorder, and he heads up the family finance team in Chambers. He's been listed for many years in Band 1 in both Legal 500 and the Chambers and Partners Directory for his family finance work. Mark is an expert in financial remedies cases with a particular expertise in trust claim, so who better to have on this podcast? He's appeared in many reported cases Um, And he also heads up the inheritance wills and probate team. He's an extremely experienced mediator in trust disputes. So we're coming at it from all angles. Ed, Mark, welcome. Thank you. Good afternoon. So today we're going to talk about nuptial settlements. But to start off, Edward, what is a nuptial settlement? Well, of course, that's the obvious question. And it, in, it, in a way, it gives rise to um, one of those answers which perhaps at the start might seem less than helpful because they're quite difficult to identify and describe. I, th- I think the first thing to, to, to remember is that they're a creature of property adjustment orders, and that's where they appear in the Matrimonial Causes Act. And that tells you, particularly the word settlement, and, and you'll hear us, I'm sure, talking quite a bit about a case called Brooks and Brooks, which I'm sorry to say in a way that um, I've been at the bar long enough to remember how enormous a decision Brooks and Brooks was in 1995, not least because it, it gave a glimpse towards pension sharing and had an enormous influence on pension sharing legislation following it, because Lord Nichols particularly spent some time looking at it. But, but I start with Brooks because this is, re- this is really the start in many ways of um, the, the, the recent focus on um, anti-nuptial and post-nuptial settlements. Because he, he, he rightly says that it, it, if you want a, a short definition, then the words he used are the best, probably. So it's a disposition which makes some form of continuing provision for both or either of the parties to a marriage with or without provision for their children. Now, as ever, that's packed with lots of different parts which need to be kind of unpacked. And he rightly yes. observed in Brooks that, that um, settlement is an old word, anti-nuptial is an old word, post-nuptial is an old word. And so w- this is where we're delving really into sort of Victorian archaeology which is surfacing in a dig in the 21st century. Um, so, so just standing back, a settlement, of course, any sort of disposition can be, can be a disposition made by somebody outside the marriage. It must yeah. benefit the parties to a marriage. It must have something nuptial about it. Now, that's perhaps the most difficult thing to recognise. And it doesn't have to have anything to do with their children. It could, in fact, be 
um, a settlement done before people marry. It doesn't have to be in contemplation of a marriage. So I think a bit like people used to say about music, it's almost easier to identify it when you see it than try to give an all-encompassing description. So can, can we think of some sort of classic examples of things which might constitute a nuptial settlement or other examples in which you could say, well, that, that certainly wouldn't amount to, to a nuptial settlement? I think one Mark? important thing to say at this stage is that trusts certainly are and can be are settlements and can be nuptial settlements, but our inquiry is broader than simply looking at either express or implied trusts. Yeah. And yeah. And, and I think that um, examples of things that that might or might not be. I mean, this this in some ways arises from those almost Jane Austen-like cases where a party to a marriage is the benefactor under a trust to X amount of money. And then on divorce, some of that money needs to be diverted to look after another party to the marriage. Um, what, what, what might not be is an example of where there's, there's marriage is never mentioned. It's, it's designed for a different purpose, such as, I mean, in Quanum Bray, it was designed to be a tiger charity not to do with um, the preservation of mar marriage, of, oh, sorry, of monies for their benefit at a later point in the marriage. So, so, so you, you, can, you can often identify the ones that fall outside. In some ways, the more difficult ones are um, where a family, for example, lives in a home which is owned by wider family or other wider family have interest and they use it as their matrimonial home. That sometimes can be much trickier, I think, to identify. Even though those those you could say, well, that's quite clearly nuptial because it's it's intended to be a family home. Well, I think you've got to look at the, 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 the reason why it was set up. I suspect that if you are the latest Duke of Devonshire or sorry, Duchess of Devonshire, you might have trouble trying to unpick a Chatsworth Trust because you've used the property as your matrimonial home, because that as a purely long-term dynastic trust designed to protect yes. Chatsworth from falling outside the ownership of the Duke of Devonshire, you probably will struggle with that. You might do yeah. much better varying a trust if you live on the estate to allow your client to live in the property for a much longer time. Because of course, one of the um, key elements is that all you can do is to vary the settlement you can't you can't unpick it particularly you can't you can't start making for example dispositions from the trust which the trust doesn't allow for you'd be stepping i think outside the powers of the trust you can only vary it within the within the terms of the, of the of the of the settlement so i think i think i think it, i think it's more it's more complicated, which is why every authority on this always says they're very fact specific. Yes, essentially it's, so. It's akin to the jurisdiction under the Trust of Land and Appointment of Trustees Act, where one of the first things you always have to ask is what was the intention of the creator, the settlor? What's the purpose of the trust? Yeah. And so 
so what um if we have identified and and actually it, i think it would help um in a moment to have just a closer look at perhaps some of the more recent cases following brooks and brooks but but once we've identified that we've got an actual settlement what are the court's powers to vary it mark well they're very broad um but one has to be cautious because, of course, the guidance from authority is that one should do the minimum necessary. So while it's it's tempting to think of it as a vast sweeping jurisdiction, it's actually one that has to be uh, very cautiously approached. But in theory, they could replace the trustees. Uh, they could appoint capital out of the trust. Uh, they could accelerate an interest. Um, I think what perhaps family lawyers, um, with the greatest respect to them, might forget from time to time is that under Part 64 of the CPR, the court has a supervisory jurisdiction over all trusts. And, for example, under Section 50 of the Administration of Justice Act, it can replace the trustees. Um, it, there's um, it, theoretically vast sweeping powers. Um, although once we start looking at trusts in other jurisdictions, whether those would ever be enforced, even if made, is a um, a much more challenging question. And yeah. so, yeah, and I was going to say about that last point, Mark. I think that it'd be interesting to see now if we got an authority, um, because obviously the Jersey courts have rowed back from the sort of English attempts almost to pull rank, I think, in the past. This sort yeah. of, you know, we're a much bigger jurisdiction than you. And if we say something should happen, we expect you to follow. And of course, they've, they, they've rode back from that um, uh, for, for, for quite understandable reasons. And also we've seen from um, pension cases that whereas the original thoughts might have been, well, an English court will make a pension sharing order and we'll see what happens in the foreign jurisdiction. We, we're obviously now cautioned that we shouldn't be making orders um, in relation to foreign pensions. And so there's a similar um, uh, a, a parallel, I think, I think, with that type of, of asset. Yes. And, and most, most foreign trust jurisdictions are very rightly jealous of their supervisory jurisdictions and don't take kindly at all. The, the other overreach one sees from time to time is an English court saying, well, the property might be subject to an overseas trust, but it's in our jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. so, so we'll just wade in and make an order. And I, I think that's to be avoided if at all possible as well. Well, I think- And that... I suppose, so, sorry. sorry. You, you... Uh, well, I was just gonna say, and I suppose one of the key things when you're looking at what, what the court's powers are is, um, whilst you might have identified a nuptial settlement, as I understand it, the court can only use its powers to vary the tr or take action in respect of the property that constitutes that trust. And so one of the big issues is probably going to be delineating what's within the nuptial trust and what's not, particularly in those sort of far larger jurisdictional trust cases. Yeah, well, I, I think that touches on a very important point, which is that we, we probably see far more 
nuptial, anti and post-nuptial settlements than we um, perhaps recognize, but we don't need to worry about most of the time because we've got better ways of unlocking provision for one party or another. So, so, so we don't need to go down that route. It's worth remembering that in Brooks, the original judge who dealt with it, District Judge Plumstead, who, who is really a fabulous, um, uh, well, then principal registry judge now, well, then she became a circuit judge. I, she may well still be sitting, um, was very unimpressed by the husband's disclosure. She was very concerned about it. And so she was much more amenable to considering the company pension scheme as being a post-nuptial settlement in order to make provision. But in the normal course, she probably wouldn't have gone down that route. And we often don't, don't go down the routes, these sorts of routes, unless we need to do so, because we know mm -hmm. that it's going to bring potentially complications with third party interests, possibly joinder of other parties. You might need somebody to start redrafting the settlement if it's, a, if it's an old settlement. And we are by our very nature, both courtiers and cowards. And I think one of the problems for family lawyers is that we are sort of expected from time to time to be um, masters of trades that we're not really masters of, such as conveyancing, settling instruments, and that doesn't come to us comfortably. Tara, can I just, just comment here? I think it's very interesting what Ed says about the um, culture and ambition of family lawyers. It's interesting to contrast uh, matrimonial finance proceedings with, for example, claims under the 1975 Act. In the former, the whole aim of the proceedings is to effect a clean break between the parties. And ongoing trust arrangements are offensive to that. Whereas under the 1975 Act, very often if you're looking to make provision for a cohabitee or, or, or a child, since the Supreme Court's decision in Islet and Blue Cross, we're told that we should look to some form of um, successive interest or, or, or trust arrangement. So it, it's um, a jurisdiction where, where we, we, we welcome it and embrace it uh, in contrast to one where it, it's um, an order of last resort. And Ed, just going back to what you were saying a moment ago, um, when you said that often as practitioners we we didn't need to look at the sort of nuptial um trust or not nuptial settlement aspects of a case just tell our listeners kind of the other way around you know what what's what sort of things you might you you be looking at to ensure that your party has kind of recourse to uh the appropriate assets well I tell you, I'll, give, I'll give you an example uh, of a farm case I did last year where um, the husband had an interest in the farm with his parents and there were also minor interests to his siblings. It included provision of the family home, which he lived on because it was owned by the farming company. And that had all been set up during the marriage. And it had probably been set up with a view to protecting the farm partnership assets, which otherwise the husband had, and then they'd been put into this, into this company from the risk of divorce. 
Now, in, in fact, the, the easier way for us to get to our uh, end, which was to house the wife and children, was by an application to have the husband's shares in the company transferred to us entirely as a lever to get the family to put their heads together to raise enough money to rehouse the wife and, and, and children so that the judge could determine that unless the sum was raised by a certain date, the husband's shares would be transferred to um, the, the wife, which would have left him in a very difficult situation with his, his family. And so all the family then became involved. Now we, we considered heavily about trying to vary it as a, as a um, post-nuptial settlement. But that of course brings his parents and his siblings in as parties potentially and goes down the route of them. What, what are you actually changing the settlement to if you just want cash out of it? The settlement was about the holding of shares in the company in the in the long term. So, so in that case, which was we, we did in fact have an application for joint of the parents, which we managed to put on the sidelines because it was going to get expensive. Um, and, and of course, you run a big risk as a litigant, um, increased risks now because of OG and AG and the, and the, and the changing costs. We're all going to have to be pretty certain if we run um, an application in relation to an anti or postnuptial settlement to make sure that we don't end up with a bigger cost bill, which is going to be much more prevalent. So, so in that case, we, we got around it. Whereas in Brooks, of course, the, the wife really needed to unlock monies from the company pension scheme and therefore without pension sharing. Of course, it would never happen these days because you'd have a pension sharing order. And so we've touched on Brooks and Brooks. Um, Mark or Ed, what about some more recent cases that you think are relevant in, in, in this area of law? Mark, do you want um, to? There, there, there's a 75 Act case, which in fact is, is, is reported on a preliminary issue, but it's quite interesting to look at the, the parallel jurisdiction. Um, the parallel power under the 75 Act is Section 21F which permits an order varying any anti-nuptial or post-nuptial settlement, including a settlement made by will, made on the parties to a marriage to which the deceased was one of the parties, the variation being for the benefit of a surviving party to the marriage, a child of the marriage, or any person treated as a child of the marriage. Uh, and and uh, in Robertson, Milburn, and Fresco, the... Um, a husband and wife died in quick succession and the husband's daughter was able to pursue a claim against uh, their matrimonial home despite the fact that it was held in a separate trust yeah and and um three three more i think which which might be really helpful to, to bear yes. in mind um so f and f uh, which is a 2012 case that in that case, a shareholder's agreement made between the husband and wife about a family company was held to be a postnuptial settlement. And we see that situation quite often, don't we? Where, where, where they do own shares, sometimes unequal shares. So if, for example, the husband had kept for himself 51% of the shares and the wife 49%, and you were moving into divorce, you might want to alter the settlement in order so they had the same number of shares. 
Now, that's another good example. Or you might say, well, why not just have an order transferring one share? But it, it may be that the um, set, altering the post-nuptial settlement is, a, is an easier way to do it. Um, DR and GR, quite helpful, I think, because that, again, is a family company providing for both, for, for one party after a marriage. And again, you see that quite often, don't you, where, where a family company has been passed the next generation, but often one of the elder generation is still getting dividends or some other benefit paid, perhaps the provision of a, of a house, and you want that varied. And Common in farming partnerships. Ed. Absolutely. Well, I was going to say in the last one I was going to raise actually was AB and CB, which is a 2014 decision of, of Mostyn. And this is much more classic, isn't it? So this is a farming case, the farmhouse owned by the husband's parents, who then put it into a trust. And that was a nuptial settlement because it had the um, continuing provision of housing for one of the parties to the marriage. And, and so that could be varied so that the wife could stay in the house for longer or a lump sum from uh, if the trust had other assets, et cetera. So, so I think those are, are three much more recent examples of the use of varying settlement in order yeah. to achieve fairness. Because as we all know, fairness is the aim and is the broad horizon. Mm. And when, we're, when we have these cases we think we've got a, a nuptial settlement um what what procedure do we want to uh follow mark what steps of if, if you're acting for someone who wishes to attack a nuptial settlement what what, what have you got to be thinking about early on well your 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 procedure is is the form a procedure but assuming you've got existing proceedings uh, what you need to be thinking about is joinder, because there's no point in having an order you can't enforce. And if the trustees or the legal owners uh, of the property aren't joined to the proceedings, um, then your, your order is worthless, really. And you may indeed very often want to have resolved as a preliminary issue whether the property is or is not a nuptial settlement. And yeah. will the courts be looking at, at it generally as a preliminary issue or will it be sort of in your, in your more kind of modest income or mid-asset mid case, will it be all wrapped up in the final hearing? I think, Ed, you, you'll, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I would think that where it is in issue, it needs to be resolved before the FDR in sort of GWRW procedure. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. I mean, I think this is absolutely akin to whether there is an agreement, for example. Uh, the, the, the prevailing authority would say now, if everyone agrees that there is an agreement, it's a fact over the Section 25 process. If there's an issue about whether an agreement was ever entered into and, and that requires separate investigation, that might be susceptible to a preliminary hearing. But I, but I get the impression that preliminary hearings are probably a little on the wane at the moment. So that if you can deal with matters together, it, it often makes it much easier for the same judge to carry straight on 
having determined the preliminary issue within within the entire in section 25 investigation but but uh, you know in um in Quanam Bray for example uh, Coleridge conducted a separate preliminary hearing to determine whether the Tiger Charity was a nuptial settlement so that so there there is authority that that might be the the right way forward and once you're oh, oh. moving into territory where um, you've got third parties involved and the prospect of a preliminary issue with costs at large before you can even get to the FDR stage, I, I would certainly encourage people to think very carefully about whether or not some form of tripartite mediation might not be a good idea because very often unlocking that third party issue is the key to resolving the financial remedy proceedings. And that there are uh, mediators out there with cross-jurisdictional experience who, who are able and willing to assist in these cases. And, and, I, and, I, and I agree entirely that for proportionality, actually it's the third party element which is like to send the, the costs sky high. Yeah. So, so if, you, if you tick the property adjustment box because you want to vary a, a, a post-nuptial settlement, as soon as you get to FDA, you're going to have to think firstly about specific directions if there's a dispute between the parties as to that and of course joinder is going to come up and then the next hearing you're likely to have is a hearing where the parties who are being joined are going to appear and all of a sudden you're into a, a world of costs which have got to make the whole thing worthwhile. And I always think it's helpful um, to, to think about your correspondence prior to uh joinder i mean mark have you got any tips for for those wishing um as i say to to attack the nuptial settlement what would be the best practice in terms of corresponding with the other side and the third party to ensure that you are protecting yourself co by costs and uh, and in any event I, I think there's sometimes um a temptation to assume that trustees will be hostile or unhelpful. And it's it's not a safe assumption at all. Uh, very often, if, if you write to them, inviting them to engage, inviting them to participate in a, in a, in a roundtable meeting or a mediation, they'll be amenable to doing so. Yes. Um, it's, it's worth, worth um, having a look at um, CPR, Practice Direction on Pre-Action Conduct, because although not strictly in play, I think it contains a lot of very helpful and sensible advice for trying to resolve cases without litigation. And, and I was going to add to that, that the, obviously the importance of writing the letter is firstly to see if you can do um, a deal or at least move the matter on, but secondly, to protect yourself on costs. When you get to doing Form E, if you've, if you've launched um, a property adjustment because of the settlement, then at 5.2 of Form E, you've got to set out um, the details of the settlement and the proposed variation. You're going to be on much stronger ground for costs if you can refer to the fact that you wrote to any interested parties at a certain time, asking their views, recording what their responses might be when you're dealing with matters further down the line. You'll, you'll, have, you'll have protected yourself much better. And what, what's your approach, Edward, to offers, open or not, when you've got third-party intervention? Well, 
I, I'm sure we're going to be doing a podcast shortly about how we are going to deal or what's the best practice for dealing with open without prejudice offers now that the rules have changed and um, OG and AG talks about effectively being seen to be negotiating, which mm. seems to be We've what- We've actually done one. Oh, we've done one, have we? We've oh, already we? done one. That's how organized <laughs> we are. Um, and 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 this is going. This is going to obviously um, cover the same part. I mean, I think as a as a broad guide to everybody now, we should always do everything open unless there's a really good reason to keep it closed. I think I think we, perhaps as members of the bar, see more firsthand than some of the solicitors that actually doing things openly at an earlier stage is much better protection. I think there's still a natural tendency of clients and professional clients to do things without prejudice. And I think we've all got to try and change that ethos. And, and I think you have to be prepared perhaps for something of a culture clash. If you're dealing with third parties who are represented by civil solicitors, they will be expecting ADR. They'll be expecting to make part 36 or without prejudice save us to cost offers. And it, it, it might be, um, there might be a bit of a culture clash that has to be uh, sensitively managed. And also their thought, I, I always think in these um, nuptial settlement cases, one of the big issues is, is getting appropriate disclosure because there's often so much mystery about the trust or the settlement. And that's really important to start putting the pressure on early doors uh, with your pre-action kind of letters uh, and, and your correspondence, isn't it? Absolutely. I totally agree. And, and of course, that's one of the main reasons why you might join interested parties and trustees in order to force some disclosure if they've been reluctant. And as Mark says, the civil ethos will be to be reluctant, I suspect. Yes. And, and sometimes it's, it's very awkward because... Uh, I've got experience of a case where at first appointment, the district judge was putting us on the spot and saying, do, do you want to join these parties or not? And we were saying, well, it's it's premature to join them. What we want is some disclosure from them. We don't want them joined to the main action. Um, we just want some answers to some pretty simple questions, which will enable us to decide whether this is um, whether this trust property is vulnerable to attack or not. Yeah, I mean, you could use the family procedure rules um, in order to have a hearing before the final hearing in order for disclosure. But again, that's an expensive route to go down, but it is available. Um, and perhaps we should um, perhaps we should be using that that power more. And just one final question I wanted to ask Edward about, if I may, is often nuptial settlements or trusts are overseas and therefore there are jurisdictional issues. What sorts of things should we be thinking about as practitioners to, to make sure um, that, that we're able to still attack them? Well, I think the first thing to do, if you've got one, is to get... Uh, a lawyer from the country um, where the trust is based 
um, who can tell you what the powers are and what the position is in relation to that. I think, I think, as we were touched on earlier, I think the days of imagining we can um, project English law across other jurisdictions without much um, sensitivity are, if they're not already over, they're certainly to the point where they're nearly extinguished. And so um, if it's a Jersey trust, you need Jersey lawyers on board pretty quickly. Uh, and you may well find that you'll have Jersey trustees as well. And they, and, and, and obviously you, you need to understand how, how they will work if you, if you want them to provide information um, or even assist in pr provision of, of, uh, of money or changing dispositions at some point. And in my experience, Jersey lawyers are quite helpful within their own parameters. They are quite helpful. They will, they will answer questions of an English court in the same way actually as Swiss trustees will, but they will do it in their own way. I think it's also and worth pointing out, um, as, as Ed mentioned, Switzerland, while we can look at a Jersey trust or a Cayman trust or um, most sort of Caribbean jurisdictions and assume that it is recognizable to us and operates in a way we understand, once you're outside of Commonwealth jurisdictions, you have to be very careful in, in using any assumptions about how that scheme and system operates uh, and local the expertise is is absolutely critical yeah and it's also critical isn't it because you might get the order you want but actually you need to know about enforcement well enforcement is key to all of that yeah and if you're going to have to have some sort of parallel proceedings you may as well know that from the from the outset and how much how much is going to be because you will then decide whether in fact it's worth pursuing or you change your focus to assets which are within the jurisdiction. I tend to find we're also slightly hoodwinked by um, dealing with English lawyers abroad. So, so, so when, we, when we talk to Swiss trustees and, and it's somebody who's clearly British working out of Geneva, we tend to think that that will make them more amenable to the English jurisdiction. And I think that's just putting ourselves really most of the time. And the same with the Jersey trustees. Well, thank you, both of you. I think we've probably um, done all that we can today, although we could probably chat for hours. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, please join uh, Mark Ablett next week when he will be uh, joined by yet another uh, Pump Court star. And in the meantime, please let us know if you've got any ideas for future podcasts we're always open to them email mark or i at our email addresses which you'll find on the pump court chambers website thank you thank you good afternoon thank you